HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome chef and restaurateur Nancy Silverton. In this episode, we'll talk to Nancy about thriving despite tough times, her passion for Italian food, and we'll hear Nancy's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Most simply, Julia embodied two things, passion and dedication. She became not only a passionate advocate for the inherent value of French food and French cooking tradition, but also for the importance of understanding how good food is made and where it comes from. Beyond passion, Julia was dedicated to her craft as a cook. Julia wanted to understand both the how and the why behind cooking techniques. She had the tenacity to learn how to do them well, even if she wasn't always a natural, and in turn, she became dedicated to teaching others what she had learned. This passion and dedication stayed with Julia throughout her life and career, and today it imbues the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts with our purpose. Someone who shares Julia's passion and dedication for food, cooking, and sharing with others is chef and restaurateur Nancy Silverton. Perhaps best known for her prowess with bread and Italian food, Nancy is, like Julia, a classically trained chef, having graduated for the Cornerbleu in London and Le Notre 
Culinary Institute in France. Her experience is deeply rooted in what's become known as California cuisine. Having worked with chefs Michael McCarty, Jonathan Waxman, and Wolfgang Puck, primarily then as a pastry chef. She rose to prominence as the founder of La Brea Bakery and co-founder of Los Angeles' revered Campanile restaurant, which I have to admit I was once regular. She's now co-owner of some eight, nine, depends how you count, restaurants around the world, although most are predominantly in Southern California, including the Michelin-starred Osteria Moza, which we are sitting in right now for this conversation, Pizzeria Moza, and Kiesbaka. Widely recognized for her accomplishments as a chef, baker, and restaurateur, she was named Outstanding Chef by the James Beard Foundation in 2014 and made both Fortune and Food and Wine's lists of most innovative women in food and drink. You may have watched her episode of Netflix's groundbreaking Chef's Table series. Her 10th cookbook, The Perfect Cookie That Changed My Life, comes out fall 2023. At the foundation, we also know her as one of our first Julia Child Award jurors and as a loyal supporter of all of our work. She joins us today to talk about her remarkable career in food and share what it takes to thrive as an innovator and businesswoman in these challenging times. Welcome to the podcast, Nancy. Thank you. And I must say you get an A, not only for accuracy, but for pronunciation. Yes, thank you. I did live in Italy briefly, so. It shows because most people, uh, when it comes to mozza, they want to say matza. Oh. Yep. And for some reason, kispaka is very difficult as well. And they want to say kispaka. Or cheesebaka. Or, or chi. Cheesebaka, like yeah. So um, I was just waiting for you. <laughs> to say chi. But. <laughs> to fool you. You, you did it right. Yeah. So I, thank I, you. Thank you. Yeah. Where'd know. you live in Italy? Firenze. For pleasure? I, or? I, no, I did a semester abroad in, in Florence. And uh, in fact, that is where I learned to cook, both for myself and took my first cooking lessons. So um, it was definitely transformative in that way because, and in those, it was the early 90s. So the eating was very good. In fact, I, there's a famous uh, sandwich place called Antica Noe, yeah. which is- Oh, I only know Antico Vinayo. Oh, I think it's called Antica Noe. So that's probably even older, but yeah. Antico Vinayo, by the way, where my partner Joe Bastianich is in the process of bringing it to America. So there's two in New York or three in New York and one's coming to LA, but there, the, there's three of them on the same street in Florence and now they're in Milan and there's one in Rome and probably a few other uh, Italian cities. But the lines go blocks down and... It's the most Instagrammable food thing <laughs> because, in the world. Because it's just so beautiful? I don't know. Or, or? It's a, everybody loves taking a picture with <laughs> the giant square sandwich okay. and themselves with the beautiful background. Yeah. And um, it's interesting. Yeah. And say the name again Antica. And, Antico Vanaya. Antico Vinayo. Yeah, no, Antico Noe was a legendary place. And a friend of mine was just back there for the first time in decades and took a photo and sent it to me or posted it. Yeah. I don't remember which or both. And um, actually, uh, he said it was still there, still the same, but it had moved to a okay. like, fancier location. Because it used to be sort of on the Ultrano or it was in kind of, it wasn't oh. in the main. Okay, no, the, this is on the main right near the Efici. Yeah, this th and that sounds more like 
less hole in the wall and more yeah. a thing. So I wanted to start, thank you for that journey down memory lane, <laughs> by the way. Um, you have such an amazing career. And I think what I'm really- I say that's say, because I'm old. Well, I was just going right? to say, however, you are seasoned, let's say, <laughs> and you are still going very strong. Yeah. And, you know, I said you have eight, nine restaurants. We're kind of figuring out, can you count Mozart to go as its own entity, right? Sure, why not? Yeah, exactly. So we'll say nine. But it's been a pretty rough last five years in the restaurant business mm -hmm. in general. And I was just having endured it. So rather than have like, oh, what happened during COVID, which I've talked to a lot of people about, and I'm hoping we're moving past, I was just curious, having experienced all those ups and downs, what is keeping you motivated and kind of going after it? Because you could equally just be like, I'm just going to have one restaurant or none. I think it really is the responsibility to my staff. And that's what it was from the very beginning when we had to shut the doors um, because I could have shut the doors, but there were too many people that were dependent on a paycheck and I couldn't do it to them. And I think that that's what kept me going. And then also our customers were so grateful at the attempt that we made that they could at least buy food to take home and uh, not have that responsibility of feeding themselves or their families night after night. And then just sort of making it through? Because I think since the pandemic, during the pandemic, you opened two more restaurants? Yes, during the pandemic. Um, and I don't know if it would have happened not being in the middle of a pandemic where I, for whatever reason, got, I think, four phone calls during that first year. One uh, that pertained to London, one pertained to um, Singapore, Mexico City, no, Saudi Arabia and Washington, D.C. Five inquiries would I be interested in opening a moza or a kisbaka in their location or their hotel and not knowing what was ever going to happen. Like Los Angeles maybe would never reopen. I said yes to every single one and every single one is now open except for Washington, D.C., but I think I heard it is not dead. Is no, in, no, no, in no, the no. Works. Next wow. year, yeah. yeah, yeah. So wow. I kind of don't know if I was sane if I would have, yeah, sort well, of spread myself that thinly. Yeah, I get it. Well, and also I'm sure you've also been in situations where you've been approached about restaurants, said yes, and they just didn't happen because exactly, exactly. it, it's hard opening right, a restaurant, right, right, right? right? So was that in the back of your head yeah, too? You're like exactly. none of these would ever all come yeah. to fruition anyway. And what these were, just to clarify, is that. They're all management deals so that I was responsible or am responsible with coming up with the menu and hiring the chef. But everybody else, including the chef, works for whoever that hotel is. So it's not the same responsibility as managing a restaurant like I do in Los Angeles. And how many are all your restaurants in Southern California your management? Yes, they're all with yeah, with my co-owners and also a limited partnership. I see. So the other ones are kind of like licensing deals. Kind of like way. licensing. It's called a management deal. Yeah. Which Rest, is restaurant parlance. And part. it's not <laughs> risky, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Meaning your your no. financial stake and responsibility is very different. Yeah. But it's it's ultimately your brand. It's right? my brand so wanna... and I feel responsible. 
Yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. So it's, it's your name, they're, they're borrowing and yes. marketing and your concepts because right. in all of the cases and the ones coming up, are they, um, new locations of existing ones or are some of them totally brand new of, ideas? Like, oh no, it's, it's not, it's existing ones. The only one that wasn't was one that was a short term management deal. And I no longer, um, am a part of it. And it was at the Hollywood Roosevelt hotel and it was called the bearish. And that was a whole new concept. Everything else is just, um, picking up and transferring it. And a few of them are hybrids, which is okay. A little from each of the menus, which is fine. Um, but there's a Kisbaka in Saudi Arabia and a pizzeria mozza in, in London, in Baja, it's a little bit of a hybrid. It, on the island of Lanai in Hawaii, that's going to be a hybrid. So it's, you know, kind of what they want. But it's a lot easier than reinventing that wheel because reinventing that wheel is very difficult. Completely. But it's also nice to be able to bring something beloved like Pizzeria Mozza to. Yes. And it's new for that area. Yep. And so therefore, it's not the same old, same old yeah. to that country or that neighborhood, it's all new. So it, it's fresh. Nice. Well, yeah. And they, that's a great, great sort of uh, primer too on how to be a restaurateur in multiple different right. ways. Um, I want to switch gears to cookies. Sure. That's kind of a big pivot that I'm following with what I planned. Mm. <laughs> how did a cookie change your life? Well, first of all, I'll tell you how, but I just want to make it yeah, clear to our listening yeah. public that it's not a cookie cookbook. It's a baking cookbook, but it includes. So the real, the whole title is The Cookie That Changed My Life. It was supposed to be the peanut butter cookie that changed my life, but marketing thought that too many people have peanut allergies. So it's the cookie. <laughs> so you yeah. lose half the audience that. already to nut allergies. Yeah, so it's the yeah. cookie that changed my life. Yeah. And then there's a subtitle, which involves plus more than 100 other cakes, muffins, tarts, and something else that will change yours. So, is so it, would you call, because that was actually my follow-up question. Is it a cookbook or a memoir it's a or no, no, also no. a hybrid? It, no, no, no. It is a cookbook. <laughs> okay. But I just wanted to make sure yeah, it, yeah. that we understood that it's not a cookie cook. Because some Got people think, yeah, oh, yeah, I heard yeah. you're doing a cookie cook, but it's more, more than that. So okay. I'll tell you. Um, uh, so cookie inspired an entire baking yes, cook. Yes, and this is how it inspired it. Go for it. So during the pandemic where... Everybody was baking their way with sourdough bread. Uh, and You'd sort of done that already. I had done that and I didn't have the <laughs> desire to do that again, you know. But uh, I didn't know what that desire was going to be. And uh, Michael, who I live with, brought back a peanut butter cookie from a bakery. It was called Friends and Family. And Roxana, who's the baker, actually used to work for me at Campanile years ago. Um, and she has a very lovely bakery here in Los Angeles. So he brought this peanut butter cookie home. And it was a perfect peanut butter cookie. In my mind, it was textbook To what perfect. you would like in a peanut butter. So it tastes like peanut butter. That's <laughs> good, right? good basis. Then I think when it comes to a peanut butter cookie, it has to have those rounded edges. It can't like melt out and be a thin, crisp cookie. It's got to be a chewy one. It's got to crack, right? It's got to be relatively soft. Um, and this was it. Um, and I like to think of myself as not a competitive person, but in the back of my mind, I'm very competitive. So <laughs> I was like, like, wait a minute. How did someone make How it? did she make a better cookie than I've ever made? And so I'm going to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Now, luckily, I had just written a 
blurb for her cookbook. So I had that recipe. So I looked up the recipe and I decided I'm going to tweak that recipe. So what I did with it was I took this perfect dough as the canvas and I um, made a big divot in that dough and I filled it with peanut butter and then I popped it in the oven just to set that peanut butter and then I topped it with um, a large quantity of Spanish peanuts with the skin, salted Spanish peanuts, and put it back in the oven to finish. And what came out was the most decadent peanut butter cookie slash peanut butter tart, I guess. You know, I don't know which one it was, a cookie or a tart. All I know is that it was beautiful. I had never seen it before. It was better than hers. (laughs) And it got me thinking that the kind of book or the kind of, well, any book, but in this case, a baking book that I would love to have is between the covers written by someone that I trust. So hopefully people out there trust me that I'm able to, or I was able to focus in 100%, give it all my attention to all the dessert, all the recipes or desserts that we really love. Pound cake, blueberry pie, uh, uh, apple crisp, nothing innovated, nothing using any ingredients that were a surprise, but looking so carefully into the exact amount of salt, the exact amount of sugar, maybe a little bit upping the spice or amount of ginger in a ginger cookie, whatever it was, making the most perfect version, I think, of that simple, craveable, doable dessert. So everything is baked. And I wanted to say until the very end, nothing was laminated um, because I think that along with Julia, I share the the idea that you got to have fun in the kitchen. And I don't think anybody has fun <laughs> laminating dough in their kitchen. I don't care who you are. Nobody has the right amount of space. Yeah. Nobody wants to clean out all the flour that falls on the floor. It's not fun. So, But I did end up laminating a dough because um, I had the most perfect Portuguese custard tart. And even though that's not necessarily an American classic, it will be an American classic. So a few of them were my predictions of what will be. Like a cannelay. I think a cannelay has made it to the vocabulary of of dessert lovers, right? Where 20 years ago, I had them in my pastry book. I don't think anybody knew well, what they like were. I feel like they're one that like goes in and out of fashion. Yeah. Like there was a fashion for them. And yes. Not, do you want to do, since we're not visual here, do you want to describe what a cannelay is? So a cannelay is named after the mold it's in. It's a very tall, fluted mold. And it's a French dessert that's basically, it's so simple to make. It's, it's basically making a crepe batter, filling it these molds, baking them for a very long time. So they're very crunchy on the outside um, a little bit eggy on the inside, but a wonderful, beautiful structure, a uh, whole structure on the inside. And I think when they first appeared, I, what, what do you think? Queen Amon took over them. <laughs> and I think now there's a croissant that, or a laminated dough that are people that are making and turning it on its side so it's mm. round. Yeah, that yeah. might be taking over the Queen Amon and the cronuts. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe we'll go back to the cannelé. But there's certain desserts that maybe we didn't grow up with, like a pound cake or a banana cake or mm. a poppy seed cake, mm. that I still are in that genre for me. 
And yeah, the cannoli is one of the men. And these Portuguese, uh, not, they're called, I think, Nanta tarts, are not there yet. But by the time... Are they little individual They're little tarts? individual custard tarts, but the dough is a laminated dough. But it's a quick puff pastry. So it's not, it doesn't have the difficulty of trying to roll and laminate a block of butter into the dough. Yeah, I'm trying to so, think. Of, so if you had a, this kind of a British English custard yeah. tart, would they be with rough puff? What would the crust be? Or they would no. be like pie crust? Yeah, I think it would be a pie crust. Yeah. But and so do they have a flavoring? A lot, a lot easier. Um, the only flavoring is really a little bit of cinnamon. Hmm. But it's more the filling, the way it's made. It's not made like a custard. It's almost made like a custard with a roux or something. And so mm -hmm. when you bite into it, you know that you're not eating say, a lemon custard tart. Oh, so, so, so it yeah, eats totally like, uniquely. It, it, yeah, and it's really, um, I think it's a it's just a fantastic tart. But I, so I do have, I, I can't lie and say there's nothing laminated. Well, that's all right. Now well, it's that laminated. Was, that but was... nothing's fried. Um, and it, it's everything that goes into the oven. But it, um, it, I think that it's a really great book. I'm really proud of it. And I think that the photos came out fantastic. I was very specific that I wanted each, and I, each um, recipe is photographed, which I think really helps. So Definitely. if it's not quite described right in the, in well, the that's description, a luxury it's that. in there. I had to double up on a couple of them, like a, f a couple of them, like say three muffins are grouped together, but it says what they are, but at least there is a visual of every single recipe. But I wanted that that the visual just to really stand out. So there's no prompts, there's no crumbs, there's no um, step-by-steps. It's just these giant photos that are so lovely lit that I'm very proud of it. Okay, And well, it comes out in November. Looking forward to it, I'm motivated to try. I don't think I've ever, I'm not a big custard tart fan, but you might've convinced me to, About to, to try About these Portuguese this. custards? Yeah. But there's lots of other great yeah. things. No, I love a tea loaf of any kind. You know, and some of the things I'm, I'm saying in there are such as the perfect pecan pie mm. is really a pecan tart because a pecan pie for me has so much of that gloppy filling and it's so sweet. When you reduce the size to a tart, there's mm. so many more, the ratio okay, of nuts. The ratio of sweetness yeah, and, and nuts so, to crust. So there's that mm. kind of thing, you know? Okay, I, agree I took you. the, I find that for the home cook, Frosting the sides of a three-layer cake is daunting, and it's never symmetrical, and it always bulges. So first of all, there's only, I think, one recipe that's actually three layers. The others are just two layers, and one is one layer, because that's really all you need, which I think really helps. But there's only one that's one layer that the sides are actually frosted, because I know how much I fight with that symmetry. I think that when you go and try to frost the sides, all of a sudden it starts to lean and bulges out <laughs> and you fight with it. So, But if it tastes no, good, it yeah. doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter, but I'm just but saying, you, you, why you do like you need a good three? Yeah. <laughs> Two is much more doable. I love it. Well, looking forward. Thank you for that primer. I want to switch gears totally again because I'm taking why advantage not? of having you captive here at Ostria Mozart. So obviously you know, devoted a good portion of your career to Italian food. And as a restaurateur who has predominantly Italian restaurants in America, I was kind of curious what you think about 
have we reached a pinnacle? Because we went through, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, this reintroduction of right. Italian food that is like Italian food from Italy rather than an Italian-American immigrant right. adaptation. But are, have we kind of reached a point where, like, we're there and it kind of is what it is we've connected enough with Italy? Or do you still kind of foresee there's going to be new avenues and new yeah. iterations? And do you see it as always evolving? I think, you know, when... when um when a journalist um, asked me to look into my crystal ball and and to predict what the next trend is, you know, I immediately cut that off and say, look, I don't know what trends are because trends are short-lived and they're not here to stay, right? And they're never successful and they're always dated and they look like a trend. Um, and I think I'm safe to say that trend, which became a trend because it... it um, it was no longer local where it belonged, but people tried to do imitations of it or their version of it, which was, say, blackened fish. Do you remember when that was such a trend? Everybody was blackening fish. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, the wonderful chef Paul Prudhomme really started that trend, and that was a trend, and it was short-lived. Mm. I think that when it comes to Italian food, I think that it is... And, and then we got to go back and say, what's Italian food? Because remember, and you lived in Italy, Italian food is so general. You know, it's so regional yeah. that to say right, what's Italian food. We have to go back to food, history, right? Italy yeah. is, a, is a convention is a country, of, yeah, yeah, yeah even so, as a country. is. I mean, when you come to my area, which is Umbria, and people come there and say, it's, I eat, and every single menu is the same. It's like, yep, every single menu is the Umbria. same because you're in Umbria, <laughs> and that's what you're going to see. But besides that, I feel like, the idea of whatever our perception of Italian food is here to stay. So does that mean it's pasta? Does that mean there's tomato sauce? But it's really those Mediterranean flavors. Mm -hmm. So did you feel like kind of... So we're not... So what I'm saying is there's no... The permutations are yeah. endless and particularly because even... If I think about it, I feel like the regionalism of yeah. Italy, which when you're in Italy is how it is. Right. It has been touched a bit in America, but it's certainly not been like done to death. No, not at all. And so many regions are untouched, right? Yeah. So, uh, and so many are overly touched, you know, certainly with Roman, uh, Tuscan, yeah. right? But, but see, that's what I know most is, uh, is Umbrian because that's where I have a house yeah. and that's where I spent the bulk of my time. You know, I, I go, I'm, you know, kind of sandwiched in with Tuscany. So it's Umbrian Tuscan food is the food that I know the best. Although like this summer I had the most spectacular fish in Abruzzo. Fantastic. And that's where you have to go. You have to be at the, on, sea. At the sea, you know. And was it the type of fish or was it a preparation it was, or both? It was, it was simple. Yep. It was the freshness and it was the type of fish and where it was caught, you know, all of it. Which is then also relative to what that fish ate, which yeah. he's going to be eating something different and in the Ionian Sea or exactly, Adriatic than exactly. in the Exactly, and that's why the fish in Sicily is just so spectacular. But right now, I think that what you're seeing, when I talk to um, people and they're saying they're off to Italy, I would say 90% are either on their way to Sicily or on their way to Puglia. Yeah. So I think you're going to be seeing a lot more food from those regions. That's true. No, that, that's very true. And then if you want to or happen to go to northern Italy, you'll recognize the Italian right. food, but it's different. You get more into butter and yep. different rices and grains and things like more that. So, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. less, much less olive oil. I'm in the olive oil heavy yeah, yeah. region, you know? Yeah. But you know, when you were talking about Campanile, so Campanile had an Italian name and it had an Italian name because I love the sound of Italian names. And it was this building sort of have a bell tower. And the building had a Hollywood style bell tower, (laughs) meaning it was a fake tower (laughs) with no bell. (laughs) With the star on the top with no bell. However, that idea of a campanile plays a big role um, when it came to or comes to UC campuses, because all of them have a campanile, and that was always the meeting place. So here was this restaurant that we couldn't figure out a name. You're talking about campuses as in Campo. I'm talking like about Plaza. Cam- no, no, I'm talking about campuses in UC universities. Oh, okay, okay. So UC Berkeley, yep. the Campanile. Yep. That was the meeting oh, okay. place. Okay. okay. Oh, I see what you mean now. So everything made sense about that name. It was a beautiful sound because you know you, when you're trying to name something, you have to mm. you have to hear it. Like, okay, I'm hungry. Where should we eat? Should we eat at uh you know, blah, 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 blah. Or should we eat at Campanile? Oh, let's go to Campanile. It sounded right mm-hmm. as opposed to something that just kind mm. of is irritating Landed to your flat. ears. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So it has a beautiful sound. It had this tower and it meant meeting place. So it was sort of an Americanized Italian word. Mm. Um, but we never build it as an Italian restaurant, although there were a couple pastas on the menu. Now, I'm sure you remember, and I hope ever listening knows um, our wonderful, wonderful food critic, Jonathan Gold, who mm. sadly is no longer with us, but he was a fantastic writer. And when he was in a fantastic palette and a fantastic everything, but when he was at, I think it was the LA Weekly, he kind of gave a name to what the food was at Campanile and it kind of stuck. And then it became its own category. And that was Calatel. A oh, blend okay. between California and Italy. Oh. And sort of related to California cuisine, but giving it a yes. new sub, exactly. subculture because those other chefs did not do right. much Italian food. They exactly. might have done a pasta. And one that in when you looked at guidebooks at that time, there became a Calatal section. Oh. So there was French food and there was California food and then there was Calatel. Now, we... Drew our inspiration, my then husband, uh, Mark Peel, and myself, from our month-long um, stay in Tuscany. So, And um, it was there when we kind of solidified what style of restaurant it was going to be. We knew that we wanted it to be a seasonal restaurant because that's what we were eating when we were shopping and cooking in Tuscany. We knew that it was going to be food that was vibrant, um, tasty, but very simply prepared, which made it very approachable, memorable, craveable, all the things that you need to have a successful business. But we never called it Italian because he was an Italian. I was an Italian. My history of Italy was one month. (laughs) But what I learned in that one month, because we had spent the prior year in New York working at a very large restaurant, not cooking seasonally. And I think in that time in New York, you couldn't buy seasonally. I mean, everything was coming unripe from California. Um, how important it was to use seasonal produce and how much a part of our, or how big, how large a part of our menu 
was going to be vegetable and product driven. I think at that time in New York, because of the proximity to, to Europe, New York kind of won on their, um, their imported items. Um, LA has since what, yeah. ca- caught up, but what they lacked was the fresh ingredients. Yeah. And that's Which you what could we had. more easily get here in the Yes. Market. And right away I was using the farmer's market and uh, I was trying to relive that month long cooking in Italy. Oh, neat. Well, and of course, the Campanile for the region that you know in Tuscany and Umbria, yes. the, the hill towns are all, they're full right. of Campaniles. They, yes. all, they almost all have them, San Gimiano being one of the, yep. the famous ones. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, that history of Campanile. I love that. All right. After the break, we're going to be back with more from chef and restaurateur Nancy Sorgen. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to chef and restaurateur Nancy Silverton about Italian food, baking, and restaurant empire building. (laughs) So one thing I wanted to talk to you about while I had the chance was you've been very successful but it's not been without setbacks. And you, you've certainly experienced hardship as much as you have been successful. And I was really curious, do you have, well, even just, I was going to ask you what's the secret, but I know you don't like that kind of, those kind of questions. And it's not a great question, but what's your perspective on being resilient? Is it something you actually proactively think about or that you give people advice on or it's not even actually in your vocabulary? You know, I think that one thing that sort of is in my vocabulary and I try to teach my staff is the importance of being a problem solver and not a problem maker, (laughs) you know? And a lot of people love to uh, live in that world of problems. And I like to live in the world of problem solving. Okay. And so that's one thing. But I think that, first of all, I think I've lived a very privileged life, you know? And I think that I've been everywhere at the right time in the right place. Um, and maybe that's with everybody. I'm not sure. But I mean, if you look back at my, at my history, the idea of coming from Michael's restaurant in Santa Monica with Jonathan Waxman, going to Spago, going to Spago, you know, the number one restaurant in the country what really changed the way people ate in America. And I was part of that from the beginning 
was life changing, right? Mm, and mm. that's privilege. And I think what you're I also saying too, privilege. like with Spago, I mean, you knew it was a good opportunity, but no, like, I didn't know anything. Jonathan asked you if you wanted to go. It wasn't like no, you were like Wolfgang oh, or Wolfgang. No, but Wolfgang didn't. I didn't know Wolfgang. It was Mark okay. who I had met. He was the sous chef at okay. Michael's. He left Michael's the same time I went to go to France to baking school. Okay. He left to go to uh, Davis and he enrolled in, I think it was agricultural economics or something like that. And while he, he had worked for Wolfgang at Mommy's Own. Yep. And when Wolfgang decided to open Spago, he called Mark. And Mark, after a lot of convincing, I left. Okay, first of all, I was leaving the hottest restaurant at that time, which was Michael's. I was the assistant pastry chef. Um, I didn't feel ready to be the pastry chef, but I finally kind of gave in, not knowing what to expect. And by the way, I was not the only one not knowing what to expect. I was sitting with Wolfgang the night before it opened, and he was asking me, what do we do if nobody comes? So, you know, and I think that he still feels that with every restaurant he opens. And you I know that nothing I for feel granted. that. Nothing for granted. But... That was, you know, that was my lucky star. I mean, opening, opening Spago, you know, I mean, that really put me on the map. But um, so certainly I have had some setbacks, many more um, successes. Um, and I don't know if one of the setbacks you're thinking about is when I was, you know, had a lot of all my money, I should say, not a lot, all my money invested in Bernie Madoff and lost all that money. And I could have just been devastated by that, but I was on my way with four other people to Napa because we were cooking a dinner at Meadowood and I was treating four people that night to French laundry because none of them had been there. Okay. Colleagues or? Yes. And um, I could have said, wait a minute, I can't do this. I don't even have money to pay that credit card bill, we went on, or I went on as if nothing had happened. But really what I was thinking was Osteria was, had just, had not just opened, but let's say it had, was a year open. Okay. And I was getting a paycheck. So you knew you had So that. I knew I had a paycheck. Now, had I left Campanile, which I did, and decided to retire or decided I will take a few years off, it would have been devastating. Mm -hmm. But I had a paycheck. And that's the first thing that my mind went to was, yes, there's, I lost everything, but I'm no different than anybody else because... And what's what's amazing that, that the listeners can see is you're smiling through yeah, this whole no, conversation. Of you know, I'll tell you something. I had no anger over it. I had no anger over it. And I'll tell you why also um, is because... I knew what I was doing was risky. It's like somebody that loses all their money in Las Vegas, right? Yeah. They have no one to blame but themselves. I had no one to blame but myself for putting all of my money into a, with a person because the returns were so high. So, and that's, I think, a matter of taking responsibility. So, the, so what was your question? Well, no, you're describing what, no, which, what was your question? You, was about resiliency and, and whether that's a part being, of your vocabulary or I mean, right. you can address that. In I terms think being resilient is also taking responsibility. And mm. I took responsibility for 
decisions. Bad judgment. And decisions and, you'd made yourself. Yeah, and I made that, yeah. No one, no one forced right. you into it. And right, nobody forced me into it. It was a decision I made, and so therefore I had to live with that decision. And that helped me. And it sounds like you're also saying that you had sort of always kept going, so you had options or alternatives yes. that gave you, a, a, while you maybe had to rebuild or change your future plans, you you weren't off on an island. Right. And I didn't have the comfort of knowing I had this huge cushion, right? So I'm again, just like how many percent of the world? 98% of the world <laughs> you had to go back does to not have a huge cushion <laughs> yeah. and lives off of their paycheck. Yeah. And so back to square one. I was back to square one. Well, I think what I'm learning from from your answer is it it's a lot attitudinal. Which yes. is, you know, even the first thing you said is, I have had a privileged life. Yep. And just recognizing that. Right. And that not being woe is me. And like you said, problem solving. Yeah. And, you know, and the financial part about what I'm doing is so secondary yeah, to the I joy was, I get out of the day to day. And so as long as I can, could feed my children pay my car bills. That's all I needed to do. I cut my tennis lessons from two a week to one a week and I did a few other things, yeah, but you know. Yeah. Had you but, paid your house off when you sold Love yes. Bakery? Uh, this is a very LA secret. It usually applies to Hollywood, but the second you make money in Los Angeles, you want to pay your mortgage off yeah. if you can because it creates a form in a very expensive housing market of incredible security. Yeah. So I so you had you'd followed that advice or, or yes, figured that out that. for yourself. Okay, <laughs> so that also gave you a, you yeah. you knew you had a roof over your head, right? Which can help Not, a lot with resiliency. Yes. So great tip there. So I also wanted to ask you um, about Italian food in Italy. So we talked about Italian food in terms of how Americans approach it and what we're eating here, but you very kindly brought up asked me about my experience in Italy, which is, is, is very near and dear to my heart. And I think Italy is a very special country, but it is complex to understand. And it's also interesting because of Italians' view of food, which I think is similar to Julia's lessons from France. Italians really care about food. It's culturally, even though there are regions, nearly all regions value food and their food and raise their families to understand good food. But with that comes a bit of, I felt like Italians, a tradition is a big thing. but can, Such a big thing that um, if you cook for an Italian and their mother didn't make it the way you made it, then you are not making it right because their mother didn't do it that way. And it's always... Well, and that's what I was going to ask you, because yeah. do you think they're strangled a little by tradition and these, well, you don't put cheese on, you know, fish pasta? I don't know if they're strangled by it, because for me, my favorite eating in Italy is the food that I feel is coming out of, could be served in somebody's kitchen, meaning I really prefer the simplest, the the um, less manipulated, um, the one that feels the, just feels so soulful. Now, soulful, sorry. Now, there are a few iconic chefs in Italy, Massimo Batura being one of them, that 
that has enough skill that he can actually pull off a whole nother level of Italian cooking. Although his is all coming from tradition, memories that he's playing with because he's a very playful cook, but he knows how to do it. I find the most disappointing meals that I have in Italy is when someone is trying to play with their food the way Massimo does, but doesn't have the skill. Mm. And then it just does not work and it doesn't translate. So I am always seeking the most basic, simple, traditional meals that I can find. Which I think that one of the amazing things in Italy are very rooted in place. Like this um, Parma ham yeah. comes from Parma. Right. This or comes from San Daniele. Yeah. Or in, you're in a fish-eating right. region, so you eat fish. Right. And you're in, like, my region is wild boar and farona. That's what mm-hmm. you eat in my region. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot heavier, the food. Mm-hmm. But, and we were kind of laughing before, is that you don't even know why, when you eat these simple, homey restaurants, why they even hand you a menu, because you know exactly <laughs> what it's going to be. Well, that's true. Or, or sometimes you go in and they have a menu. I've had experiences. The best bills I had in Italy was they have a menu and or you'll look at somebody or there's often, especially most Italian restaurants are, are not fancy. They're quite straightforward or simple. Mm-hmm. But one thing you should also, in Italy, you do not judge whether you're going to get good food by the decor. No. That is not at all. You judge by how many Italians are eating in a place. That's for sure. And they'll often be eating like a different menu, which is they've all just come in for spaghetti for lunch because they're all working. But I remember very distinctly going to this, and I cannot remember the name of town outside of Torino, this hill town. And we got lost and ended up there by accident. We were starving and we just found the main restaurant on the, the main square. And we went in there and I can't remember what they said. And my Italian is poor, but passable. And they basically said, do you want the special? And there was, like I said, a whole group of workmen eating there. And we're like, okay. And we thought we were going to get what they get. Well, it turned out it was actually a tourist restaurant. And we got like a 12-course tasting menu. Oh, actually, was, was it good? It was amazing. Oh, okay, because I was thinking. It was good because it wasn't, um, it was all little small plates. Uh-huh. It was almost like tapas, but but not, didn't look or taste, but it was small bites right. of things. And then after we left, I was like, we got to look this place up. It must be in guidebooks and was things it? like that. Yes, it was. Oh, okay. But it was one of the most incredible meals I've <laughs> okay, had. Okay, good. Phew, but, because, the, you know, the the idea or the fallacy of you can't get a bad meal in, <laughs> in Italy is not true. <laughs> you can get a bad meal anywhere, and Italy included. Well, I feel like that's like the Americanization of Europe now, is yeah. that there's much more faster, quick meals and packaged things, and that's a terrible thing we've done to the planet. <laughs> but, but back to that, I, I, w- I want to push you on this because I am wondering, I know what you're saying about sort of higher-end food in restaurants yeah. and stuff, but do you think that that sometimes they are strangled by tradition and these ideas of it has to be this way or Nona made it this way? Or are you actually also seeing vibrancy and innovation within Italian traditions in, in the parts of Italy that you've been spending time in? You know, I think that, um, yeah, I think like, I'll just talk about my favorite restaurant in my little town. So my little hilltop town, which is a 14th century town. And I live in the country of that town. And that means that I live probably about 
45 seconds <laughs> from the uh, from the back wall of that town, which is like perfect. So I, I have land, I have a pool, I have olive trees, but I'm 45 seconds away from. Skip the, right through the wall into the main town. Wall into the main town. But there's, and in this Does it tiny have a piazza little, and a yes, campanile? It has a piazza and two campaniles. And uh, the piazza is just a beautiful little piazza where you can just watch the world go by. And there's three restaurants in that piazza and two bars that sell, that serve food. So, but I've had my favorite and it's called Masolino. And over the years, I think that um, Mama, who's been the cook, and she's still in that kitchen and she's, I think she's 83 now. Her wow. husband, who was the front of the house, died. And as soon as her husband died, which was probably 22 years ago, the kids like finally redid the interior and tried to make it really modern. It was a really unattractive restaurant with fluorescent lights and it was very unattractive. And so they- But the food was it. always good. But the food was always good okay. and very homey. And um, I see the last couple of years, they've finally hired a chef to help mama. And he's young and you can see what he's tweaking. So in, you know, what and they never- And he's Italian. And he's Italian. So what they never had on their menu before were um, sfamortas. So that's a, uh, uh, a um, you know, like a pureed vegetable that's in a form, mm, mm, right? Mm. So there's mm, mm. egg and bowl. Oh, yeah, it's like it literally not a flan, means formed in yeah. Italian, yeah. Right, so they're on the menu now. Never mm. saw them, so mm. you see a zucchini spamorta. Like, Only oh, on wow. nights that mama's off? Or? Oh, no, she's, <laughs> she's aware. She's there, but you can see how how that they're, they're tweaking things a little bit. Interesting. Um, they're doing a uh, papa pomodoro, which is a, tomato and bread soup, but they're adding burrata to it and some toasted curled bread, you know, that's wow, something that, you never would have seen. that's scandalous. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So you, it's still the way Do you see locals Mama, sending that back? Saying, no, 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 the, no, they're, they're eating it, okay. but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not 100% what Mama did 25 yeah, years yeah, ago, because yeah. that's how long I've been going to that yeah, restaurant. But I think she's growing or being flexible with the times. Not bad, yes. One of the first things I was yeah. taught to cook was Pop El Pomodoro. Yeah, which I love. And like the insulada mista that just had um, maybe some grated carrot, you know how it always has like a little carrot in there and something else, all of a sudden has some seeds in it and some other element. It's like, what's that doing in there, you know? So um, they're trying to be a little bit more contemporary. Yeah, it sort of seems like it's innovation within tradition. So they actually, yeah. the menu isn't changing, but what your insalata misa is going to contain yeah. is evolving. Interesting. Interesting. And do you, do you think, I mean, obviously, I think you would share my view that slow food and that movement is incredibly important. Yes. In, partly for sustainability and partly for taste. But obviously, you can have a certain stagnation from the Italian idea of slow food of like, things are this way and no evolution. Right. But what I love, you know, so there is the only country that I know of that besides its Michelin guide, because there are Michelin restaurants now in Italy, and then they have one at Gambero Rosso and a, mm. um, and a L'Espresso, right? They have, which is my favorite guidebook, a slow food guide. And if you only want to go 
to restaurants that are more traditional that fit into that umbrella, then that's the guide you follow. And that was always Jonathan Gold's favorite thing to do because, you know, he used to come with me to Italy every summer. His wife and his kids do still. But, oh, um, lovely. Yeah. But that was, you know, as soon as that guide uh, came out, I don't know, it wasn't the 25 years that I've been going, but it has been for a while. That was his, that was his prize thing was to land, go get, a slow food guide, and that was his book. Because I think they have them by region. Because I, yes. I remember, that's where I went to some place that you literally thought the road was going to disappear yep. to get to this place in San Daniele that yep. was, and it was it was stunning. Yeah. It, there but was they're no not decor. all great. I've had yeah. some. I've oh, had some bombs at some of those slow even, food ones. Oh, you know? really? Yeah, it was too slow. But <laughs> you, well, not yeah, maybe or something. Yeah, it just the execution just wasn't wasn't good. But it's a great guide. You know, it's a great resource if you don't want to eat Michelin. Well put, yeah. To slow, for you know. sure. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a little, yeah, you're more likely to have some basic things. We actually went to a place in Marinello, which is, uh-huh. I'm a big car nut, so I have to go to the Ferrari thing, and we ate lunch in what looked like a motor garage, uh-huh. which was in the Slow Food Guide, and it, it looked it terrible, d- and it was but the food was delicious. They only had like two things, too. It was like sort of like a Brodo sort of yeah. tortellini, but right. it, was, lo- yeah. it was delicious. You were and in the area for that, though. Exactly, exactly, and it lived up to it. There were cars outside, and you had the food for, the, for well, that. Well, now you, area. you know, now um, at the museum, um, Massimo Batura has a an osteria there, so you could could do that. You could do that and not have to go on the long wait list of Osteria Francescana. <laughs> Good tip. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to hear Nancy's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really. You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Nancy, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> well, I, I I think that I have the one, right? I can brag about it. And, you know, still to this day, when people watch that the clip, um, well, I don't want to spoil what happens, but they're always shocked that it, it, what it happened still has happened. impact. Yeah, yes. it has, okay, well said. It still has impact. So um, I was uh, in her kitchen doing her, I don't know, was it her last series? It was the baking series. No, actually, it was, I think, the first season of Cooking with Master Chefs. No, 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 no you no. did that. I, the, but yeah, so it was so the next was, season of Cooking with Master Chefs. Nope, it was no? the baking series. So there was two series. Oh, it was Baking with Julia. Yeah, bake, okay. Yes, yeah, there were three where, seasons of that. So there was the Master Chef. You were on that. I was on that the first, I was the guinea pig of that first um, show. Format, yes, because the first, the first format. format was not in her kitchen in right. Cambridge. And, um, she came to you and... Yeah, At she can, Well, we used another kitchen, but I think those two. What was it called? Cooking with Master Chef. What was it called? Mm-hmm. Cooking yeah. with Master. Both Chef. of those were on the road. Yep. And then when she decided to do a baking series, is when she decided to shoot it out of her home, invite 
the uh, chef into her kitchen and cook side by side, which was so much better than talking to a camera with her off to the side. You know, it was like, it was just such a wonderful, wonderful experience and one that I'll never forget. But I chose to make for her- So you her, said the scene, right? You are actually literally in, yeah, cooking, in, yeah. cooking in her Cambridge, which is now in the Smithsonian, yep. but was still in her house in Cambridge. And you're shooting the show in a real life. Her in a real life. And even though it wasn't shot live, she made it very clear that she liked to shoot it as if it would be live. And so she wanted as little editing as possible. So what that meant was that it had to be done in whatever that time was. I don't know if it was 50 minutes or an hour, whatever it was, she wanted it to be finished at that time and for her to be, be fed a bite or to taste it. I don't know if I everybody actually shoved a fork in her <laughs> mouth like I did. But anyway, so she said, what I will do is three minutes or five minutes, whatever it was, uh, before the end, be, when we have to wrap it up, I will tap you on the hip. And that means you've got whatever that was, three or five minutes. So I decided to, with the dessert that I um, did for her was a dessert that I really loved and I thought that she would love too. And it was a brioche tart. Um, it was a brioche custard tart with sauteed stone fruit and a zabayon. Uh, and some spiced nuts, and it was, I think it's just very comforting and, and delicious dessert and yeah. unusual and special. So that's what so I made rustic, to her. So rustic, but a little bit elaborate because it yeah. had lots of components. Yeah, and I thought, and I knew that, you know, given her fondness for French, it tasted French. It mm. didn't taste mm. like a carrot cake. Was it you know? Cal Italian? It was Cal <laughs> It was no French. It was Cal, Fra Cal Franco. Fra Cal Franco. It was Cal, Cal Franco. Franco. Okay. Um, and so the finish of this dessert was um, sauteing the stone fruit <clears throat> in a hot syrup and spooning it over this baked tart. So everything was moving along fine. Uh, sorry, everything was moving along at a great pace. And then all of a sudden I got that big knock on my hip and it's like, okay, I've got my three minutes to do it. So I quickly spooned over this hot, hot syrup, <clears throat> topped it with the zabayon. Uh, some spice nuts, sprinkled on some powdered sugar, cut it, and gave her a bite. And she ate it. And I looked at her for approval or disapproval. And I see these tears streaming down her face. And my initial thought was, oh, I just burnt her, you know, because of this hot syrup. And then came the words that I will never forget and will never become stale. And she said, this is a dessert to cry over. How can you do better than that? And as soon as she said that, did you know in that moment that you hadn't burned her and she was having yeah. an emotion? So, yeah. so it did register it clearly did, right yeah. away. It did because to say this is a dessert to cry over, I could relate to that. Wow. And you never found out, right? And and Julia was like this. She didn't like explain to you like what the emotional thing no, had triggered, uh -uh. but you knew it. What, there was something about the yeah. experience that gave her that emotional trigger. And that's trigger. what food is about, you know, is all those triggers and all of those memories and the people. She probably, because again, it really was a dessert based in French roots. The person that I borrowed that dessert from, his name was uh, Claude Coberly. And he was like a premier French pastry chef in Los Angeles. His father owned a very famous bakery um, in France. And 
his assistant at that time became my pastry chef. So he brought that tart to me and then I finished it the way I did. Like it was just a tart. And then I finished it with the stone fruit and the sabayon and the spiced nuts. So I kind of personalized it. But, you know, you know that that bite transformed her back to, or sorry, transported her back to something in France. I didn't ask her who she was with and what it was, but you know that that's where it brought her. And that's when you know you've done something successful. And I have to say, to this day, and I don't know if this will make sense, but there'll be a cook that will bring something to me for for approval. You know, always the um, intention is to get it on the menu, right? And sometimes I'll eat it, and that story is not there. Mm. And you don't taste it. Mm. And then it just tastes like food. And that story was clearly there for Julia. And that's why it was so successful. And that's why it brought her to tears. Because she tasted her story and my story. Well, I have to agree. So glad you could join us. Because I think it is the epitome of a Julia moment. So thank you very much for talking with us and sharing that. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure to be able to speak with you on one of my favorite topics. I'm glad we could. Food and Julia. Wonderful. Glad we could cover them. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. For more, you can follow at Nancy Silverton on Instagram. Check out her link tree for links to all her restaurants, books, and culinary adventures, even to order Nancy's fancy gelato. Her new cookbook is The Cookie That Changed My Life and more than 100 other classic cakes, cookies, muffins, and pies That will change yours. And look out for that Portuguese tart. It's out soon from our friends at Knopf Cooks. Video clips from The French Chef continue to arrive weekly on at Julia Child on Facebook. And please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram and now Threads. I'm T. Shulkin on Instagram and Threads. You can find Julia Child channel streaming The French Chef on Pluto TV, Plex, Freebie, and Tubi, as well as on the PBS Living and PBS Documentary channels on Amazon. You might be lucky lucky enough to catch uh, Nancy on Baking with Julia as well. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.